What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. From the Jill Schwartz Memorial Library here in Sultry, Savannah, Georgia, this is Obscure... Season 3, Wuthering Heights, I am your host, your friend, your ear lover, your literary mansplainer-in-chief and Georgianologist, Michael Ian Black, Southern Gentleman, Esquire, uh, with starting uh, uh, today's episode with a word of thanks to everybody who reached out to me after last week's episode in which I discussed my crumbling mental health. As I said last week, I had come to you from a slightly elevated place in terms of mood. I am happy to report that that has continued. Now, I also express some frustration because I don't know what changed in my life that would explain my mood alleviating. Maybe it's no different than clouds blowing in, clouds blowing out. I don't know. I mean, when you're in the middle of a rainstorm, you think, God, is it ever going to stop raining? And then it stops raining. Of course, we can explain that. We understand that storm systems move according to predictable patterns. If not entirely predictable, then somewhat predictable. But that does not seem to be the case with my moods or probably indeed anybody's moods. I mean, sometimes, yeah, something good happens. You're like, oh, hey, I'm happy. But trust me, nothing good has happened. Although, we are getting ready to head off to Italy. Now, does that improve my mood? Not really. Because as I've said before, I don't have foresight. So I can't imagine myself in Italy. If anything, I'm approaching it with a certain amount of dread because I don't know. Like one of the themes of last season was that change itself, while rewarding, can be very challenging. To the point where you're like, I don't ever want to experience change again. Because change can be confounding, especially when you reach a certain age, as I have. Change is wonderful. It grows synapses in the brain, but it also produces 
anxiety and foreboding. I couldn't, I look, am I, do I have a, a sense of foreboding about going to live in Italy for three months? No, but I don't know what's going to happen. Are Martha and I going to strangle each other with long strands of pasta? Possibly. She may garrote me with linguine. I don't know. But yeah, we're only weeks away now. And uh, it, is, it, it, it is quickly becoming real. And uh, yeah, I don't know how to feel about it. Good, I guess. I'm, I, honestly, most of my nerves about it have to do with like, what the hell am I going to do all day when I'm there? Probably the same exact thing I do all day when I'm here, which is get up, go to the coffee shop, write, come home, nap, eat, go to bed. Like that's essentially my day here in Sultry Savannah. I imagine it will, it will be many of my days in Roma, Italia. We're also going to try to document it somewhat, you know, so you can see our trip. Uh, maybe, you know, throw it up on Instagram or YouTube or whatever. That could be fun for somebody. I don't know who. And uh, yeah, I, I guess I'm worried like Martha's going to always be wanting to be doing touristy things. And I can handle a certain amount of touristy stuff. But after that, I go, I just want to eat a piece of pizza and some prosciutto and some mozzarella and some buffalo wings uh, and go to bed. Uh, you know, it's like, you know, how many churches am I going to see? You know, how many saints how many ruins? I don't know. It'll be an adventure, you know? Let's say that. It'll be an adventure, and hopefully my mood will cooperate, and I'll be able to enjoy the adventure. Over at Wuthering Heights, there, uh, we got a new adventure already set to go because, my goodness gracious, we're starting a new chapter. Last week, I cut a little short because we had finished a chapter, and I was like, oh, I don't want to start a new chapter because that's always so exciting. I thought that'll really give these kids something to look forward to, you know, as they put down their podcasts for the week and think about, you know, the stuff that they have to look forward to. And they're like, nothing, nothing, nothing. But then they think, ah, but Michael's going to start another chapter on Wuthering Heights. So let's get right to it. And it's a big one, too, because it's a uh, it's got three X's in it. The chapters are all labeled using Roman numerals. And this one is chapter 30 of Wuthering Heights. So the last thing that happened was Kathy Jr. is being spirited off to Wuthering Heights to go live in a dungeon. Uh, her dad is dead. Everything's terrible. And it's a little unclear why she is acquiescing to this. But she is. Heathcliff has led her away. He's probably going to go tired of some train tracks or some damn thing. I don't know. But let's pick it up again. Chapter 30, Wuthering Heights. I have paid a visit to the Heights, but I have not seen her since she left. Joseph held the door in his hand when I called to ask after her and wouldn't let me pass. He said Mrs. Linton was Thrang, T-H-R-A-N-G, and the master was not in. I don't know what Thrang is, so let's crank up the old uh, research machine. Thrang, definition, busy. Ah, Scottish variant of throng. So if you imagine a throng of people, that's a, that's a hubbub. That's a kind of busyness. And she is occupied. Throng. Zilla has told me something of the way they go on. Otherwise, I should hardly know who was dead and who was living. She thinks Catherine haughty and does not like her. I can guess by her talk. 
My young lady asked some aid of her when she first came, but Mr. Heathcliff told her to follow her own business and let his daughter-in-law look after herself. And Zilla willingly acquiesced, being a narrow-minded, selfish woman. Well, wait a minute. Isn't Zella literally employed in that household to help the occupants of that household? Isn't that, in, that, isn't that exactly her job? But apparently not. Apparently her job is to do whatever Mr. Heathcliff says, and why not? He pays her wages. So perhaps she was correct. Catherine evinced a child's annoyance at this neglect, repaid it with contempt, and thus enlisted my informant among her enemies as securely as if she had done her some great wrong. I had a long talk with Zilla about six weeks ago, a little before you came one day, when we foregathered on the moor. You didn't foregather. You rambled to the moor. Don't tell me you foregathered. You no more foregathered there than you three gathered there. You rambled. And this is what she told me. The first thing Mrs. Linton did, she said, on her arrival at the Heights, was to run upstairs without even wishing good evening to me and Joseph. She shut herself into Linton's room and remained till morning. Then, while the master and Earnshaw were at breakfast, she entered the house and asked all in a quiver if the doctor might be sent for. Her cousin was very ill. We know that, answered Heathcliff, but his life is not worth a farthing and I won't spend a farthing on him. But I cannot tell I cannot tell how to do, she said, and if nobody will help me he'll die. Walk out of the room, cried the master, and let me never hear a word more about him. None here care what becomes of him. If you do, act the nurse. If you do not, lock him up and leave him. Then she began to bother me, and I said I'd had enough plague with the tiresome thing. We each had our tasks, and hers was to wait on Linton. Mr. Heathcliff bid me leave that labor to her. So Zilla is not even allowed to help Heathcliff's son. She's just there basically to not do bidding. Anybody's bidding except for Heathcliff's. And uh, that's, you know, if, if, if Linton's life isn't even worth a farthing, what the hell is Zilla worth? You know, why is he paying her if his own son's not worth a farthing? Farthing is traditionally the funniest name for money, seconded by doubloon, third, shekel. Who's speaking now? How they manage together, I can't tell. I fancy he fretted a great deal and moaned his own, his elm, H-I-S-S-E-L-N. His elm. Oh, I've got to look that up. I mean, that's a that's a weird, weird one. These early American words are very confusing. And if you look up his elm, it, the first thing that comes to is uh, Wuthering Heights, it, uh, and and it just means himself. Just whining himself, whining and you know, being miserable night and day. And she had precious little rest. One could guess by her white face and heavy eyes. She sometimes came into the kitchen all wildered-like, and looked as if she would fain beg assistance. But I was not going to disobey the master. I never dared disobey him, Mrs. Dean. And though I thought it wrong that Kenneth should not be sent for, it was no concern of mine, either to advise or complain, and I always refused to meddle. I mean, the kid's life is on the line, Zilla. 
Of course, your sport might be too if you, if you uh, interfere. Once or twice after we had gone to bed, I've happened to open my door again and seen her sitting crying on the stairs top, and then I've shut myself in quick for fear of being moved to interfere. I did pity her then, I'm sure. Still, I didn't want to lose my place, you know. At last one night, she came boldly into my chamber and frightened me out of my wits by saying, Tell Mr. Heathcliff that his son is dying. I'm sure he is this time. Get up instantly and tell him. Having uttered this speech, she vanished again. I lay a quarter of an hour listening and trembling. Nothing stirred. The house was quiet. She's mistaken, I said to myself. He's got over it. I needn't disturb them, and I began to doze. But my sleep was marred a second time by a sharp ringing of the bell, the only bell we have, put up on purpose for Linton. And the master called to me to see what was the matter and informed them that he wouldn't have that noise repeated. I delivered Catherine's message. He cursed to himself and in a few minutes came out with a lighted candle and proceeded to their room. I followed. Mrs. Heathcliff was seated by the bedside with her hands folded on her knees. Her father-in-law went up, held the light to Linton's face, looked at him, and touched him. Afterwards, he turned to her. Now, Catherine, he said, how do you feel? She was dumb. How do you feel, Catherine? He repeated. He's safe, and I'm free, she answered. I should feel well, but she continued with a bitterness she couldn't conceal. You have left me so strong a struggle against death alone that I feel and see only death. I feel like death. And she looked like it, too. I gave her a little wine. Hareton and Joseph, who'd been wakened by the ringing and the sound of feet and heard our talk from outside, now entered. Joseph was fain, I believe, of the lad's removal. Hareton seemed a thought bothered, though he was more taken up with staring at Catherine than thinking of Linton. But the master bid him get off to bed again. We didn't want his help. He afterwards made Joseph remove the body to his chamber and told me to return to mine, and Mrs. Heathcliff remained by herself. In the morning, he sent me to tell her she must come down to breakfast. She had undressed and appeared going to sleep and said she was ill, at which I hardly wondered. I informed Mr. Heathcliff, and he replied, Well, let her be till after the funeral, and go up now and then to get her what is needful, and as soon as she seems better, tell me. So, Linton... Dead, dead little Linton. Oh, how tragic, how tragic indeed that impish little wraith should expire in the night by the side of his beloved Catherine. So in, in the course of two chapters now, we've had two deaths. Last chapter, her papa died, uh, Papa Earnshaw, and now Linton Heathcliff has expired and uh, in a very quiet manner, let us agree. I mean, he was, you know, he was kind of waxy and ashen and hanging up, hanging out upstairs. And then uh, suddenly Zilla is relating the story because obviously Mrs. Dean doesn't live there anymore. So she's the spy telling Mrs. Dean everything that happened. And Zilla doesn't care for Kathy. So she's hardly around at all. And then Kathy comes in and says, tell Mr. Heathcliff Linton's dying. And it turns out, well, in fact, he truly was.
and we didn't get to be there, you know, for the for the deathbed scene, which I guess I don't care about particularly. What's he going to say? I'm dying, Catty, I'm dying. I shall be reunited with Mama, and Papa shall, shan't be able to get at me again. There, I've just recounted the death scene of Linton for you poor saps who feel like you need such a thing. Can't we leave anything to the imagination? All right, let's take a break. You can think about poor Linton dying. I'll think about being strangled to death with a limp piece of linguine. And then we will return in a moment here on Obscure. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Getting the smile and confidence you've been dreaming about all from the comfort of your home? isn't a total mystery with Bite Clear Aligners. Just don't be surprised if all your friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Back in Obscure, Linton is dead. Long live Linton. Kathy is, uh, well, hard to say how she is. She has just been shook out of her fugue state. She is awaiting now the funeral of her young cousin slash husband, okay? And, uh, you know, Heathcliff doesn't seem troubled by it. Joseph doesn't seem troubled by it. Zilla hardly seems troubled by it. Nobody seems troubled by the fact of Linton's passing, perhaps because they have been expressly forbidden from feeling anything that the master of the house does not wish them to feel, and because they fear him more than their own psyches, they have chosen to obey. All right, so let her be till after the funeral. Kathy stayed upstairs a fortnight, according... Oh, Kathy stayed upstairs a fortnight, according to Zilla, who visited her twice a day and would have been rather more friendly, but her attempts at increasing kindness were proudly and promptly repelled. And I don't blame Kathy at all. I don't think Zilla's a bad sort. I think she probably just comes from, you know, tough upbringing. 
She got a position in this house and she's going to hold on to it for all that she's worth. Because what happens if she gets fired? You know, she can't get her letter of recommendation to go to another house and she'll just be right back there on the pig farm with Pa. She doesn't want that. Or is that Arabelle? That's Arabelle. That's not Zilla. Heathcliff went up once to show her Linton's will. He had bequeathed the whole of his and what had been her movable property to his father. Well, who do you think did that, Linton or the lawyer? The poor creature was threatened or coaxed into that act during her week's absence when his uncle died. The lands, being a minor, he could not meddle with. However, Mr. Heathcliff has claimed and kept them in his wife's right and his also. I suppose, legally at any rate, Catherine, destitute of cash and friends, cannot disturb his possession. Yeah, you know, out there in early America, you know, the laws were tough on the ladies. You know, it was hard to own stuff and, and take care of stuff and be the master of all you survey. And, and uh, you know, Heathcliff's certainly a, a rascal when it comes to legal proceedings and maneuverings. And, you know, he's going to get his way. Nobody said Zilla, ever approached her door except that once, but I, and nobody asked anything about her. The first occasion of her coming down into the house was on a Sunday afternoon. She had cried out when I carried up her dinner that she couldn't bear any longer being in the cold, and I told her the master was going to Thrushcross Grange, and Earnshaw and I needn't hinder her from descending. So, as soon as she heard Heathcliff's horse trot off, she made her appearance, donned in black, and her yellow curls combed back behind her ears as plain as a Quaker. She couldn't comb them out. Now, she couldn't comb them out because... Why? Why couldn't she comb them out? Because Zilla's not there to help her or because she doesn't know how to comb her own hair? That's not clear. Seems like she should be able to comb her hair. Joseph and I generally go to chapel on Sundays. The Kirk, you know, has no minister now, explained Mrs. Dean, and they call the Methodists or Baptists place, I can't say which it is, at Gimmerton, a chapel. Well, that was all parenthetical, and I don't know why it's in there at all. I don't know who who would care that there's no minister at present there. I mean, it seems like the concern of a minister's daughter, which, of course, is what Emily Bronte is. Joseph had gone, she continued, but I thought proper to bide at home. Young folks are always the better for an elder's overlooking, and Hareton, with all his bashfulness, isn't a model of nice behavior. I let him know that his cousin would very likely sit with us, and she had been always used to see the Sabbath respected, so he had as good leave his guns and bits of indoor work alone while she stayed. He color, well, you know, He's still in love with her, and now he sees his opportunity. I don't know if he's been working on his reading and writing or what, but... Now he sees his opportunity. Will she marry another cousin, or will perhaps his savage nature get the better of him, and he will ravage her? Who's to say? A ravish, I guess, is the word. Well, let's just compromise and go with radish. He's going to radish her. He colored up at the news and cast his eyes over his hands and clothes. The train oil and gunpowder were shoved out of sight in a minute. I saw he meant to give her his company, and I guessed, by his way, he wanted to be presentable. So, laughing, as I durst not laugh when the master is by, I offered to help him if he would, and joked at his confusion. He grew sullen and began to swear. 
Now, Mrs. Dean, she went on, seeing me not pleased by her manner. You happen to think your young lady too fine for Mr. Hareton, and happen you're right. But I own, I should love well to bring her pride a peg lower. And what will all her learning and her daintiness do for her now? She's as poor as you or I. Poorer, I'll be bound. You're saving, and I'm doing my little all that road. Hareton allowed Zilla to give him her aid, and she flattered him into a good humor. So when Catherine came, half forgetting her former insults, he tried to make himself agreeable by the housekeeper's account. Mrs. walked in, she said, as chill as an icicle and as high as a princess. I got up and offered her my seat in the armchair. No, she turned up her nose at my civility. Earnshaw rose, too, and bid her come to the settle and sit close by the fire. He was sure she was starved. I've been starved a month and more, she answered, resting on the word as scornful as she could. Oh, so I have to rest on the word. I imagine, what word? Starved or month? Let's see. I've been starved a month and more, she answered. Or, I've been starved a month and more. I think month. I've been starved a month and more, she answered, resting on the word as scornful as she could. And she got a chair for herself and placed it at a distance from both of us. Having sat till she was warm, she began to look round, and discovered a number of books in the dresser. She was instantly upon her feet again, stretching to reach them, but they were too high up. Her cousin, after watching her endeavors a while, at last summoned courage to help her. She held her frock, and he filled it with the first that came to hand. That was a great advance for the lad. She didn't thank him. Still, he felt gratified that she had accepted his assistance and ventured to stand behind as she examined them, and even to stoop and point out what struck his fancy in certain old pictures which they contained. Nor was he daunted by the saucy style in which she jerked the page from his finger. He contented himself with going a bit farther back and looking at her instead of the book. Well, how is Hareton emerging from this telling? How is Hareton the brute emerging as the kindest and, and gentlest of the lot? He, he was stringing up puppies not too long ago, and now here he is, helping to fetch books and putting them in frocks. He's a frock book pusher. I don't know if I'm the first person to ever say frock book pusher, but it feels like maybe I am. Feels like something something like a like a McCall would say. Fran book pusher. Do, do McCalls talk? Well, let's let's crank up the old research machine yet again. Do McCalls talk? Yeah. Yeah, they're parrots. They mimic human speech. And they can say bad words too, apparently. Here's a macaw talking. This is from a parrot wizard. Saying, Rachel. Rachel. Uh-huh. Rachel. Rachel. He, I mean, I can't. I can't say he's doing great talking. It's not that impressive. Let's see if he picks it up at all. Gray goose. Gray goose. Sounds like Ra- Rachel has a drinking problem. You know, if, if that macaw 
is hearing the phrase gray goose enough that it starts saying it, well, then we have to have a conversation with Rachel because that is not, that is just not very good. She continued reading or seeking for something to read. His attention became, by degrees, quite centered in the study of her thick, silky curls. Her face he couldn't see, and she couldn't see him, and perhaps not quite awake to what he did, but attracted like a child to a candle. At last he proceeded from staring to touching. He put out his hand and stroked one curl as gently as if it were a bird. He might have struck a knife into her neck. She stared round in such a taking. Get away this moment. How dare you touch me? Why are you stopping there, she cried, in a tone of disgust. I can't endure you. I'll go upstairs again if you come near me. Mr. Hareton recoiled, looking as foolish as he could do. He sat down in the settle, very quiet, and she continued turning over her volumes another half hour. Finally, Earnshaw crossed over and whispered to me, Will you ask her to read to us, Zilla? I'm stalled of doing naught, and I do like, I could like to hear her. Do not say I wanted it, but ask of yourself. Yourself. I like that. Like his elm. Yourself. Instead of, you know, instead of the F, you just use an N. Yourself, yourself. Like if you're going to play a guitar riff, you just play a guitar rin. Same thing. Mr. Hareton wishes you would read to us, ma'am. I said immediately. He'd take it very kind. He'd be much obliged. She frowned and looked up, answered, Mr. Hareton and the whole set of you will be good enough to understand that I reject any pretense at kindness you have the hypocrisy to offer. I despise you and will have nothing to say to any of you. When I would have given my life for one kind word, even to see one of your faces, you all kept off. But I won't complain to you. I'm driven down here by the cold not either to amuse you or enjoy your society. What could I have done? began Earnshaw. How was I to blame? Oh, you are an exception, answered Mrs. Heathcliff. I never missed such a concern as you. But I offered more than once and asked, he said, kindling up at her pertness. I asked Mr. Heathcliff to let me wake for you. And then there's an unexpected footnote. We haven't seen a footnote in quite a while. Uh, To wake for means to wait up for. Be silent. I'll go out of doors or anywhere rather than have your disagreeable voice in my ear, said my lady. Hareton muttered she might go to hell for him, and unslinging his gun, restrained himself from his Sunday occupations no longer. He talked now freely enough, and she presently saw fit to retreat to her solitude. But the frost had set in, and in spite of her pride, she was forced to condescend to our company more and more. However, I took care there should be no further scorning at my good nature. Ever since I've been as stiff as herself, and she has no lover or liker among us, and she does not deserve one. For let them say the least word to her, and she'll curl back without respect of anyone. She'll snap at the master himself, and as good as dares him to thrash her. And the more hurt she gets, the more venomous she grows. At first, on hearing this account from Zilla, I determined to leave my situation, take a cottage, and get Catherine to come and live with me. 
but Mr. Heathcliff would as soon permit that as he would set up Hareton in an independent house, and I can see no remedy at present, unless she could marry again, and that scheme it does not come within my province to arrange, Mr. Lockwood, wink, wink. The, the book does not say Mr. Lockwood, wink, wink. That was my insertion. Well, we now have come to the crux of the matter, have we not? Mrs. Dean has sat up these many nights relating the sad, sordid tale of Catherine Jr. to her house guest for the express purpose of contriving an escape for her young mistress. And in fact, that is that uh, has now become evident. Mrs. Dean is hoping that she can arrange some sort of courting between Lockwood and Catherine Jr. that does not befoul the tenuous situation as it appears. Now, why should Heathcliff care if Catherine Jr. goes off and marries Lockwood? One less mouth to feed, one less person to intrude on his more ramblings. Well, maybe he will, maybe she won't. Thus ended Mrs. Dean's story at long last. Uh, He does not say at long last. I said that. This is now Lockwood picking up the tale. Finally. Hopefully we are done with Mrs. Dean and her voice. Thus ended Mrs. Dean's story. Notwithstanding the doctor's prophecy, I am rapidly recovering strength. And though it be only the second week in January, I propose getting on horseback in a day or two and riding over to Wuthering Heights to inform my landlord that I shall spend the next six months in London, and if he likes, he may look out for another tenant to take the place after October. I would not pass another winter here for much. End of chapter 30. So Lockwood is about to go up to Wuthering Heights and take his leave, and uh, perhaps all of Mrs. Dean's chitter-chatter will have gone, will have been for naught. Hard to say. I mean, we've only got another 30 pages or so, 25, 25, 30 pages to go. I mean, if if, if Lockwood is going to court Catherine, he better do it awfully quick because we are running out of book unless we are setting ourselves up for a sequel. Emily Bronte, you saucy minx. Are you setting us up for a sequel? I bet she is. Oh, those Americans and their sequels. Will it never stop? Why can't they just leave well enough alone? Well, they can't. So, that concludes our reading for the day. Chapter 30 was uh, pivotal, although not that exciting. I mean, you'd think a a chapter with Linton dying in it would be exciting, but it, it wasn't really. It was... It, it felt expository more than anything else, but she's Bronte is maneuvering the pieces into their final assemblage on the board, and uh, in the next thirty pages, we'll see how she plays the end game. I'm just uh, you know just can't wait to find out. I mean, I'm not that excited, but I w- I would like to finish this book before I go to Italy, so I don't have to pack it. All right, let's leave it there. Pick it up next week on another chapter. That's exciting. Starting another new chapter uh, of Wuthering Heights and another 
Uh, strategic? I don't love that. Temperamental? Maybe. I'll stick with temperamental. On another temperamental episode of Obscure. But until then, I wish you adieu. This season of Obscure is produced by me, Michael Ian Black, and Robin Lynn. Our theme music is by Craig Wedrin. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Michael Ian Black. And get even more Obscure content at our site, patreon.com slash Michael Ian Black. Thank you for listening. Thank you.